Hi, and welcome back to I Love You. I know. I'm Amanda. And I'm Kevin. And this is our podcast about love, marriage, and Star Wars. But mostly it's about Star Wars. Kevin, what are we going to talk about tonight? So tonight we're going to break down episode one, The Phantom Menace. So who's the Phantom and who's the Menace? Or is it the same? I think the Menace is the Phantom. And I don't know that we know by the end of the movie. It's a weird title. Okay, good good stuff, good stuff. So really what this is, it's the origin story, right? Yeah, this is basically the origin of, of a whole bunch of things. This is the origin of the Skywalker line. This is the origin, or really at least our first view of the Galactic Republic. This is our first view of the Jedi in their prime, the Jedi Council, and introduction to a whole lot of characters that we've maybe seen little pieces of in the original trilogy, but really don't have a backstory for. And this is literally 19 years before we meet Luke Skywalker on Tatooine, right? That's correct. Yeah, a lot of stuff's going to go bad real fast. Yes. Okay. So we talked about the three-act movies before. Uh, This one you and I were talking about, and we realized it can't really be consolidated into three acts. It's more of a four-act. So let's start with Act 1. What happens here? So Act 1 really introduces us to um, the politics of the Galactic Republic. And going all the way back to the, uh, the scroll text at the beginning, it talks about trade routes are being taxed and there's these different groups that are fighting over trade routes. And one group, the Trade Federation, is blockading another planet, Naboo, for reasons that we don't entirely understand. And that Jedi are dispatched to resolve the dispute. And what we see here is Jedi not in a warrior capacity, but in a political capacity, resolving um, a minor dispute on the behalf of the Galactic Senate. Okay. And, you know, to just take one step back, it's important for our listeners to know this movie came out in 1999 right? That sounds right. Yeah. Um, I know we saw it as a date. Um, we had already been together for a little while and, and we went to go see the movie together. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. We were, yeah. I think right after our freshman year of college. That sounds about right. That sounds about right. Yeah. So we were very much looking forward to this. Yeah. Um, our anticipation was at that point unparalleled uh, to any other Star Wars movies. This was the first Star Wars movie that was released when we were kind of conscious and adult or adult light when we were in college. The other Star Wars movies, you know, came out either before we were born or when we were small children, and there was a huge gap between them. So this was sort of our first opportunity to see a Star Wars movie from like the frame of reference of, of someone who could really understand what was going on. And, and so we're introduced to this mundane political dispute over a trade route after all these years of anticipation. So how do you think that played with people? No, not great. <laughs> no, I, I think a lot of people... Uh, trash this movie and there we'll get to other parts that i think are valid uh of being heckled but i think that it's important that we look at the underlying plot line and realize so much happens in this movie so much plot is set up the politics are nuanced um in in some aspects and in other aspects it's just you know the sith manipulation of easily manipulated uh star systems and power hungry people which I, i think you know while we may not have Sith in modern day Earth times, we uh, we see political escapades that, you know, rival what we see in this film. I think that's right. And I think that that's sort of the the kind of quiet genius, if you will, of this movie is that it sort of sets us up into a universe where we're expecting 
this whole kind of like space war situation. And it's really the introduction into it is this very quiet political dispute um, that ultimately leads us into, you know, by the end of the trilogy into the Empire. But it starts very, very simple and very small and like a conflict on one planet of a million in the in the Galactic Republic and then explodes out from there. So Act One really deals with um, sort of setting up some of the characters and setting up the motivations and setting up the plot. And so introducing who do we us. meet? So we first meet uh, two Jedi. Uh, we meet Qui-Gon Jinn, who is a Jedi master and his Padawan. And this is our first introduction to the term Padawan. So a Padawan is a young adult member of the Jedi Order who is not yet a full Jedi Knight. And the Padawan that we meet is Obi-Wan Kenobi, who we'll basically see grow up through his entire life. He, he's the old guy that we met in um, A New Hope. That's so, right. you know, we're, it, it's funny to see him as the apprentice, essentially. And so at this point, um, Obi-Wan's probably in his young teens. You think? He strikes me as he's probably closer to like 20-ish. So I'd have to look it up, but I'm pretty sure that like Padawans are usually between like 12 and 15. Well, then he was poorly cast. Let's move on. <laughs> Perhaps. Anyway, uh, young young Obi-Wan and his master Qui-Gon are dispatched to solve this trade dispute. And they are ambushed by the folks that, um, that, they're, that they're there to meet with under the direction of the mysterious Darth Sidious. Darth Sidious is our first introduction to a Sith master that we know of in the sort of traditional Sith terms. So we met the Emperor and Darth Vader in the original trilogy. And this is the first time that we meet another person of the title Darth. And we start to find out that Darth is actually a title and it represents a Dark Lord of the Sith. Okay, so we've got Obi-Wan, we've got Qui-Gon, we've got this uh, Trade Federation, which unfortunately... At the time it was made, and if you continue to rewatch it, it doesn't quite hold up. There are some racist undertones, but you take that out of the equation and just follow the plot. Um, you've got these greedy capitalist guys that think that they're going to uh, basically take the resources from Naboo and you know make themselves more powerful and richer because they've gotten to you know get in bed with the Sith Lord here. That's right, and then. Um, after the Jedi are ambushed, they escape the ambush. They sneak down to the planet Naboo, and there they meet Jar Jar Binks. So this is why everyone hates this movie, right? Yeah, people really didn't like Jar Jar all that much. And look, I think Jar Jar is not the greatest character, but he's a comic relief. And this movie is pretty heavy and pretty political and probably could use a comic relief. The more I watch the movie, the less I hate Jar Jar. I, I'm with you on that. Uh, and the more that I watch any other scene in any other Star Wars film that includes C-3PO, the more I feel that Jar Jar took a really bad rap. And, and don't get me wrong, I, I really am not a big fan. Um, I, I saw something on the internet the other day saying, you know, just think about this. There's a universe in which... Jar Jar Binks wound up getting elected so you know we'll not too many spoilers for down the road but you know he, he obviously must have some kind of following that you know the rest of us humans don't really get but within a galaxy far far away you know people like Jar Jar but I, I agree he he's kind of the reason that uh, a lot of people don't really like this movie and he takes away from why we need to like this movie yeah 
So down on the planet Naboo, we we find out, and Jar Jar is not human. Jar Jar is a member of an amphibious species called the Gungans. Um, and the Jedi run into Jar Jar. They meet him. They talk to him. They tell him that they're trying to get to the Naboo to escape the droid army and warn the Naboo, who are humans, um, that, that this droid invasion is coming. And Jar Jar brings them to his... Um, his people's underwater city that's sort of hidden under a lake. And we start to find out that the Gungans and the Naboo, while they inhabit the same planet and they're sapient species, they don't really get along and they don't really have very good relationship. Right. And I think that it's important to mention that uh, Qui-Gon accidentally saves Jar Jar Binks. So that creates what's known within Gungan culture as a life debt. And if Jar Jar had gotten rolled over, you know, I, I think our movie would have gone in a completely different direction. If Jar Jar had saved his own life and he didn't feel in any way indebted to Qui-Gon, then that also, I think, would have changed the scope of the movie. But for whatever reason, Qui-Gon accidentally saves Jar Jar and then Jar Jar feels that he is indebted to Qui-Gon and is basically stuck to him like Velcro. And so the Jedi and and Jar Jar visit the Gungan city. They uh, convince the leadership of the Gungans to give them a transport and a path to get to the Naboo. Qui-Gon actually uses his Jedi powers to influence the Gungan leadership um, in what is the first of, and I think we'll talk later in the in the podcast about the ethics of Qui-Gon Jinn, but in one of, the, one of his slightly less than ethical uh, behaviors, he manipulates them with the Force. They get a transport, and then we engage in a very long and unnecessary chase sequence through underwater land that I don't want to talk about. And we end up meeting the Naboo and um, Queen Amidala. And she becomes a very important character throughout the original trilogy and some of the other media beyond. This is Padme Amidala. Right, and so she is essentially the child queen of the planet. Uh, They use the word queen differently than we do. Uh, She appears to have been elected. Um, So... Here's this young woman, and she is in, I believe when the movie came out, it was in the news about it being about 50 pounds of costuming that uh, the actress Natalie Portman had to wear. And she looks kind of crazy. She looks a little uncomfortable. but And she speaks with some kind of imperial, uh, not imperial, but some kind of governmental accent that we hear from Leia in episode four. So we start learning that there's a different dialect that people in the governing class might use. For, for whatever reason, she's very well respected by her people, despite her uh, youth and, and inexperience. And she basically says she will not condone actions that will lead her people to war. And so she sort of denies the Jedi's warnings that she needs to leave the planet or do anything to fight back against the Trade Federation. She believes that she can continue negotiating with the Galactic Republic. The Jedi point out that they were the negotiators of the Galactic Republic and the Trade Federation tried to assassinate them. And that conversation sort of ended when there is a sudden communications blackout and the and everybody in the Naboo Palace realizes that the Trade Federation droid army has started an invasion and cut off their communications with the rest of the galaxy. So at this point, what are their choices? So their choices are kind of to stick around and face the droid army, except the Naboo don't really have their own army. They have a small security force and two Jedi who are not 
capable of fighting off an entire droid army or they can flee and try to get to a place get back to coruscant the capital and speak to the senate or get to somewhere where they can talk to the galactic republic and so that's what the leadership chooses um to try to escape the planet and so uh the jedi and the queen uh try uh, make their way to a ship and try to escape right and so that brings us to act two and this is where we come back to tattooing it's a planet that uh, we saw in episode four it's where luke was raised and now we're back at tattooing and once again we're reminded that this is a generally lawless planet we see slavery we see gambling we see these cartels there's a reason when you start realizing just the long history that tattooing has it's a great place to hide luke like what who's gonna go out there it's a mess like you know you you think of different parts of the world that we live in today that are borderline lawless and you know you you're it would be a great place to hide someone assuming that they survive yeah except yes without digressing too far into the hiding luke thing except that they hit a guy named skywalker in a place where skywalkers come from from a guy whose name was skywalker who grew up there okay it still somehow worked it did work out and you're right it is it's a it's a lawless place and it is a it's a place that nobody wants to be so it's a good place to hide out um and in fact that's why um our sort of crew goes there their ship is damaged during their escape uh they can't make it all the way to coruscant and they choose to go here because the trade federation has no presence there the the republic has no presence there um and they feel like they can hide among the criminals while they get their ship repaired we also meet Jabba the Hutt again. He's younger and smaller and a little bit less gross. Only a little bit less gross. Yeah. But he's still kind of running the planet. Um, well, they say the Huts are, so it makes me think that there are multiple Huts. There are multiple Huts. The Hut is the name of a species, and there are multiple Huts who sort of run things, but Jabba is at this point sort of the, you know, um, in mafia terms, he's sort of the, the young Don. And there are other huts that are sort of like his people. And this town is Maz Eisley. So like whatever other towns are on Tatooine, maybe other huts are running. Um, yes, but Jabba runs the like. So Jabba is a member of the Derjak clan. The Derjak clan is sort of the, the mafia in charge of the whole planet. And he's the top guy in the clan. Okay, cool. So uh, they get to this planet. They realize they have no money except Imperial credits. Republic um, credits. Or Republic credits. Sorry. We're not an empire yet. <laughs> uh, not yet. They, they've got Republic credits. But again, we're on this planet where, you know, cash is king. And so if you aren't trading in actual useful currency for these lawless, unethical folk, then uh, they don't want to know you. And so this is where we start seeing some questionable behavior from Qui-Gon Jinn. And we're supposed to be, in all of our experience with the Jedi at this point, we've basically thought that they're the good guys and they do good things. And we see Qui-Gon, he does some not-so-great things with his power. Yeah, that's right. So, I mean, first of all, we meet Anakin Skywalker, who, when we're introduced to him, points out that he's a slave. Um, So Anakin is an eight-year-old boy who was born to a woman named Shmi Skywalker, um, Shmi and Anakin are both slaves to um, a Troidarian named Watu. And, and he's like a big oversized flying lizard thing. Yeah. Um, there's another. Arvark? I don't know. Well, there's more racist overtones in here, and I'm um, not going to talk about them until you, you can watch the movie and judge for yourself. Yikes. But um, 
Yeah, so so Anakin and his mom Shmi are both slaves to to Watu. Um and Anakin is has some superhuman capabilities. Um and in particular, he's got a little bit of precognitive ability and he can participate in pod races, which are essentially souped up chariot races and he's the only human who can who can manage to not die in the process he's never won a race but he's never died racing and that puts him ahead of most people um and so what we see is qui-gon is willing to first of all he tries to use the force to manipulate watto who is um uh uninfluenced by the force he then cheats at gambling um in this sort of complicated plot to get both the parts he needs and also to free anakin he seems to be relatively okay with the fact that anakin's a slave and not particularly interested in freeing slaves in fact he specifically says he wasn't he didn't come there to free slaves and and so he's you know at this point knows about it and doesn't do anything about it so yeah he's got a lot of questionable behavior on this planet and in all fairness he doesn't really seem that concerned about them being slaves he seems more concerned in from the time he left the ship he and one of the queen's aides um who you know it's fairly obvious because it's natalie portman but uh, you know, apparently he he's not aware of it or chooses not to be aware of it. But, you know, him and, and Padme are on the planet and they're walking around Mos Eisley. And all he's concerned about is repairing the ship, getting to Coruscant. And then as soon as he identifies this little boy, he senses the force in him and is looking at, you know, how can he pretty much exploit the force? Um, or, or bring back something to the other Jedi to tell them, look what I found, it's so forcey. Th- these are his, his focused items. He, he seems to not really care about the enslavement of these people. That's right. And like he only, he only cares about freeing Anakin because Anakin is strong with the Force, and then he does a, <sighs> does a blood test on him and discovers he has more midi-chlorians in his blood than any Jedi, including Master Yoda. So apparently this is a big scandal to people who didn't want to have science involved in the force. And I I think, you know, if you translate it to modern times, science and religion can work together. And so for all the people who are hashtag anti-midichlorians, like it's okay for midichlorians and the force to work together. It's not the worst. It's kind of a bad explanation. I, I think they came up with it. It seems made up um, and kind of an afterthought and forced in there, but we run with it and, you know, we move on. Yeah, it just felt forced. It felt like an unnecessary plot device, right? In 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 the original trilogy, you had this notion that people who were Force-sensitive could sense each other through the Force, and for some reason they came up with this additional plot device to be able to say, I can measure with an electronic device that this guy's Force is more Force than all the other Force, and it felt forced. But we'll move past it. So Qui-Gon discovers that this kid's super duper strong with the Force and wants to bring him back with them. And so he he puts together this whole convoluted plot that involves a really, really long Padre scene that is 15 minutes on tape that could easily be three. Yeah, so the way to make this movie better is because you're going to be watching it in the privacy of your own home now is to just fast forward let the race start and then fast forward and watch it on two times speed and then when you get to the end you're like 
maybe even skip a couple of minutes, but you only spend about 30 seconds watching him fight. The other racers are playing dirty, and it's not unexpected, but Anakin, you know, he's he's a good little boy and a little midi-chlorian soon-to-be Jedi, and he, he manages to win the race. And with the prize from the race winnings, they're able to repair the ship. Anakin gets freed. You know, in theory, we think our heroes are going to move along their merry little way. That's right. And there are sort of two problems now. One is that with even despite all the cheating that he does, Qui-Gon is only able to free or only chooses to free Anakin. I think that's really important. Only chooses to free Anakin. That's right. And he does not free Anakin's mother. And so he forces Anakin to make a choice. He can either stay on the planet with his mother as a free person or he can leave his mother and come with the Jedi and potentially be trained as a Jedi on Coruscant. And tearfully and at the encouragement of his mother, Anakin chooses to leave um, the planet, leave Tatooine behind. Um, The second problem comes up as they decide to leave the planet. Uh, A new character appears. We get our first sighting of Darth Maul. Yeah, and, and here's this red and black faced horned guy with a dual lightsaber who's wearing his hood and he's speeding around and he's an extremely skilled swordsman and they're like racing towards their ship which Obi-Wan and the rest of the crew had been on repairing and they're ready to go and then all of a sudden here's this unexpected fight scene in the desert and and what's surprising to the Jedi is the Jedi at this point believe that the Sith are extinct um They believe that about 3,000 years before, at the end of the last Sith War, that all of the Sith were destroyed. And so the Jedi consider themselves to be sort of the undisputed masters of the Force in the universe. And they know all of each other. And when this guy shows up who is not a Jedi yet has a lightsaber and is able to fight off a Jedi... Uh, they're very surprised. They're shocked. And um, they manage to escape and nobody dies. Um, but they jump on the ship and they jump to light speed and they head off to Coruscant. So now the crew on the ship is uh, Padme, is um, the two Jedi, Qui-Gon and Obi-Wan. We've got Jar Jar still that we picked up on Naboo. We've got Anakin that we now picked up on Tatooine. And um, R2-D2, who came with the ship, uh, is on board. Oh, yeah, that's a good point. So there's a couple things we glossed over on Tatooine. Jar Jar Binks did go with them. Um, He kind of makes a bit of a ruckus throughout his misadventures on Tatooine. We also learn that um, Anakin is good at building droids, and he's been building C-3PO. And so 3PO calls Anakin the maker, so that, that's important to remember because we see it down the road as well. And now we've got double whammy comic relief because we've got C-3PO and his cheesiness and we've got um, Jar Jar Banks. But the other thing that we're really not going to get into, even though this is a podcast about relationships, but it's just so painful to watch, uh, is the relationship between Anakin and Padme. At one point, Anakin says, are you an angel? And it's just so forced. Yeah, the whole thing is cringy. And when you kind of think about the fact that we've got like an eight-year-old boy who's kind of coming on to a 16-year-old woman who's the queen of a planet, um, and she kind of seems into it, 
um, or at least into having some kind of relationship with him. It's probably not romantic at this point, but then you fast forward and we'll talk more about this in episode two when their relationship blossoms, that this is the fact that how it started, it gets very cringy very fast. Yeah, because I think of uh, boys that I knew when I was eight years old and I did not spend the next 10 years pining for them because yikes. Yeah. Um, That said, uh, you know, here's the beginning of the relationship. It's important to point out because we have one relationship ending between Anakin and his mother. I mean, he doesn't stop loving his mother, but he stops being with her. And the new woman in his life is Padme Amidala. That's true. All right. So they managed to escape. Darth Maul is standing there and they're like, this is a crazy development. What are we going to do now? And they head to Coruscant. So Act 3 kind of takes place on Coruscant and it has two parts. So one is more politics in the Galactic Senate. And then the second part is a meeting with the Jedi Council. And let's just knock out the Jedi Council part first. So Qui-Gon and Obi-Wan, after their mission to Naboo, they go to appear before the Jedi Council. And this is the first time we see the Jedi Council. And there are maybe a dozen folks. They sit in a circle in a room. They very quietly contemplate things. They're kind of led by Yoda and Mace Windu. Um, who Mace Windu is a very powerful kind of fighter Jedi, Yoda we've met in the original trilogy, and then there's a bunch of other Jedi that like basically don't do much other than sit in a circle and nod at them. But I still think it's really cool because before there was like one, maybe two Jedi, and now we've got a whole room full of them, plus we learned that there are other Jedi dispatched within the galaxy. That's, that's right. cool. Yeah, I mean, we, we see the Jedi Temple, and the Jedi Temple is a huge building that's full of Jedi and Jedi trainees and children Jedi and adult Jedi. And so, yeah, we get this, we get this viewpoint that there are now thousands of Jedi, which is pretty cool. Um, we also do, in a very brief pan around that uh, Jedi Council room, we do meet Yaddle, who is the one other member of Yoda species in the entire thing until we get to something later. Um, Though Yaddle has literally three seconds of screen time, no spoken dialogue, and her name is not used at all. Um, But basically, Obi-Wan and Qui-Gon come to report on what they found in their travels. And so they report on the fact that um, the droid army has invaded Naboo, and the Jedi aren't particularly interested in that because that's a Senate matter. They report on the fact that they found this kid, Anakin, and he's very strong with the Force to the point that Qui-Gon says he believes that he may be a virgence in the Force and could be the chosen one. Yeah, this is a really big deal because he doesn't believe, like, he doesn't think maybe it is. Like, he really believes it, and Yoda totally calls him out on it. And that's where I think we, we already knew Yoda from the original trilogy, but here we are, we're seeing Yoda basically take, the other Jedi to task, you know, calling them out on their feelings and their thoughts and saying, I know you better than you think you know you. And, you know, really brings the truth to light. Yeah. And this points out that apparently Qui-Gon has gone up against the Jedi Council before. Qui-Gon has his own sort of philosophy about the Force and is very um, interested in the living Force and very interested in some prophecies of the Force that most other Jedi don't believe anymore. And this includes the prophecy of the Chosen One, which has never really been like fully written down anywhere that I've seen, but it basically says that there will come upon, at some point, a Chosen One who will bring balance to the Force. And That's pretty vague. That's pretty vague. And as we come to find out, they may have in, misinterpreted the uh, the prophecy in identifying Anakin um, 
or identifying what balance means. But um, but Qui-Gon believes Anakin is the chosen one, and so he asks that Anakin be tested and potentially trained as a Jedi. And so the council reluctantly agrees to let Anakin appear before him. Again, so showing some like lack of sensitivity for the fact that this kid was born on a planet outside their system, so he doesn't have the opportunity to be tra- trained as a space wizard like kids who were born in the Republic. Yeah, yeah, that's that's a good point. Republic privilege right there. That's right. And it's pretty cold of the council to be like, yeah, I guess, but we don't really believe it. And then the third thing is they report on the fact that they fought um, this Sith character or what appears to be a Sith. And, you know, no one on the Jedi Council is old enough to have lived during a time of the Sith and they all believe them to be dead. But uh, these guys have some fairly compelling evidence. And so the the council orders that they investigate and try to find the origin and what's going on with this Sith guy. Um, and then they agree to test young Anakin. Right. So now we're going to go back to the whole politics of what's happening while we're on Coruscant. So we, we meet the Senate and they are massive. There's thousands of systems that are a part of the Senate and the bureaucracy that we see is just I mean, it, it's disappointing. It's disheartening. You, you wonder how they're ever going to get anything done. And you realize they aren't getting anything done. And you realize that poor Naboo, this little innocent planet, is going to stay blockaded until the Trade Federation gets whatever they want, which I still wonder what it might even be because Naboo didn't look like this planet that was bustling in commerce unless they were going to like strip mine the planet. Yeah, in one of the books that are now canon, they they refer to the fact that Naboo has um, some some kind of resource that is rare and valuable. They talk about being energy plasma, which I'm not really sure what that is, but Naboo has something that the Trade Federation wants. Okay, yeah, but we we don't really know what it is, and so we it kind of doesn't matter. Yeah, it, it's mainly a plot device because at this point we're also introduced to uh, Senator Palpatine. He's a senator from Naboo, so he is really close with the queen Padme Amidala and we we meet him and so he's happy to see her safe and you know he he seems like a kind of a kindly old grandpa uncle kind of guy I guess um through some fancy camera uh, shots, we, we kind of get the fact that maybe he's not the grandpa that you want to have. He might be that weird old dude, like, giving you the side eye, but you don't know for sure. Um, so he kind of suggests that, you know, the bure- bureaucrats of the Senate are going to screw everything up. Naboo is not going to get the support they need. And ultimately, the chancellor is, is weak, and the chancellor is in charge of the entire republic. So somehow, uh, not surprisingly, uh, Queen Amidala is manipulated and suggests a vote of no confidence in Chancellor Valorum. And that just all heck breaks out in the Senate. And what winds up happening, Kevin? So Palpatine is elected to be the new chancellor. And this Shocking. is. Shocking. Yeah. Not all that surprising um, in that he sort of manipulated events to make this true. If you guys remember from uh, some of our other podcasts, Palpatine is ultimately the guy who becomes the emperor and is also Darth Sidious. Um, It's made sort of clear in this movie, uh, but when you really put all the pieces together, it's important to know that at this point. 
um, that that's that's sort of his future. So he's been manipulating all of these events behind the scenes to get himself elected to be chancellor of the republic. He's the ultimate puppet master. None of these things have happened without his foresight. Um, what is concerning, though, is he's hanging out literally on the same planet as an entire temple full of Jedi, and no one can tell that he's a Sith Lord. That's right. Yeah, that's not great. Not great. Jedi not doing a not doing a great job here. Um, and not to really get into too much politics, but you know, we, we see these themes ring true. You know, the the errors of the the past um, are going to repeat themselves, and we see that in Star Wars, and we sometimes see that on our planet here too. Um, there's also this uh, big blue guy with horns who we kind of just start seeing following Palpatine around, and he doesn't look like any of the guys we met on Naboo. He's essentially Palpatine's lackey, right? That's right. His name is Masa Meta. He is um, he's sort of the Chancellor's uh, like chief lieutenant. And in the beginning, he works for Chancellor Valorum, um, but he really represents some of the bureaucracy, and he is under control of Palpatine. And Palpatine uses him to limit Valorum's power. And then when Palpatine rises, he uses Masa Meta to control the bureaucracy himself, um, and increase Palpatine's power as Chancellor. So before we leave Coruscant and move into Act 4, we have one last thing happen. And so Anakin goes before the Jedi Council. He has the tests. And they test him, and it's clear that he's clairvoyant or strong with the Force. But there are some other things that are very clear, too. Yeah, and the biggest thing is that Yoda senses a lot of fear in him. Um He's afraid of losing his mother. He's afraid of the future. He has a lot of anger. He, I mean, he was raised a slave. And so he's kind of mad at the mad at the universe. And usually they start training Jedi when they're younger. So they take them away from their family before they have an opportunity to know their family. So they can't feel that loss and they can't feel that anger. But Anakin has those. And as a result, Yoda and the council decide to refuse to train Anakin. And so they tell Qui-Gon and Obi-Wan, you're not allowed to train him as a Jedi. Um, but they kind of leave him in their care because at this point he has no parents and he has no family and Qui-Gon is the only thing he has. So he goes back to like hang out with Qui-Gon and Obi-Wan because no one knows what to do with him at this point. And Qui-Gon's kind of like, I'm going to teach you on the sly. You're, you're going to stay close. You're going to watch what I do and do as I do. And uh, but you're not really my Padawan. So yeah. we also learn that Obi-Wan, uh, the council does view him as, you know, pretty respected. And because Obi-Wan says, I could take the trials. I, I'm ready um, to become a Jedi Knight myself. So, you know, we, we do learn that the council has seen Obi-Wan's progression as well. That's right. So Padme says, okay, I've done my part for politicking. We see the Jedi Council kind of show what, what it is they do. And then Padme's like, I got to go home and protect my family. Why do Qui-Gon and Obi-Wan go with her? Yeah, they are assigned by the Jedi Council to protect her, I suppose. Um, it's not really clear, but because they were involved in the negotiations with Naboo and they're still under a mandate from uh, the Senate to both protect her and to try to resolve the situation on Naboo, they travel with her back to Naboo. So we've got basically Jar Jar, Anakin, R2-D2, Padme, Obi-Wan, Qui-Gon, and her um, and Padme's kind of crew all jump back on her spaceship and head back to Naboo. All right, so that brings us to Act 4. And as you mentioned earlier, 
There is no Naboo army, really. Like, how are they going to defend the planet? She's basically turning herself in as soon as they get there. That's so it would seem. But it turns out that the Gungans actually have their own army and their own kind of form of weapons and shields and, and defenses. And Jar Jar reveals this. And um, basically, uh, Padme and Jar Jar work out a deal where they find the Gungans who are hit, hiding out. Their city has been overrun by the droid army, but the Gungans are hiding out. And she goes and supplicates herself to the Gungan leadership and says, hey, I want you to set up your army to fight the droid army as a distraction so that the rest of us can break into the palace and capture the Trade Federation Viceroy and, f- and force them to leave the planet. Right. And, and in this plan, uh, we get... Padme's deception is finally revealed. I, I mean, all of us who know Natalie Portman as an actress, we could be like, well, that's her wearing all that make it, makeup and being the queen, and that's her acting as the, the handmaid. Um, what some of you may not have realized is that when she trades off, that's actually Kira Knightley. Um, so she reveals her, it's Kira Knightley who, you know, takes a knee in front of the Gungan king and says or general and says hey please help us and he's like hmm and then that's when uh Natalie Portman as Padme Amidala steps forward as a handmaid and says no I'm really the queen that's my decoy blah 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 and then because she's so truthful and so revealing and so humble the Gungans have a good laugh and they decide this is time for the Gungans and the Naboo to partner which is a good call yeah yeah, and that works out well in the end for everybody. Um, and so basically, Act 4, for the most part, is like your standard, it's your standard Star Wars battle, right? So we have um, a ground battle between the Gungan army and the and the trade, uh, the trade Federation droid army that the Gungans start out winning, then they start losing, and then they ultimately win. We have another battle in the city where Padme and a little group of insurgents break into the palace and try to capture the Viceroy, and they're winning, and then they're losing, and then they're winning. And we have an accidental space battle where somewhere in the middle of this, through a weird set of circumstances, Anakin ends up in a, in a starfighter because they decide that there's a good plan to send some fighters up to knock out the droid control ship in orbit, and Anakin ends up accidentally piloting a fighter and accidentally inside the droid control ship and accidentally destroying the droid control ship for reasons that really don't matter much. They, they really don't. And you guys can't see it because it's a podcast, but Kevin spent the last 60 seconds rolling his eyes and shaking his head. The scene is forced. We know Anakin is strong with the force. We don't need to see that he can pilot a ship at eight years old and blow up the like one spot that he needed to blow up, which if you start realizing you're getting a big deja vu feeling here from the Battle of Yavin. So here we are basically ripping off episode four's final scenes. That's right. And look, all of this is visual and it's fun and it's and it's some, it's some good solid Star Wars and it's some great battles, but the it's really- The good guys beat the bad guys. The good guys beat the bad guys. And so it's great, but it's not like very plotty. The really interesting part is the last part of the battle and that is what's called the Duel of the Fates. And, and so at this point, we've got uh, Padme and her crew plus the two Jedi. They're trying to get into the palace. And all of a sudden, there's Darth Maul. And Padme's like, okay, we're going to take the long way. And the Jedi decide they're going to deal with the Sith Lord here. So uh, it's a pretty cool fight scene. It is the best lightsaber battle in all of Star Wars media. 
it is the probably one of the best uses of music and one of my favorite John Williams compositions um, in the entire series. And it is it's just an incredible dynamic fight scene. Um, the actor Ray Park did the choreography for it, um, and he is just a master of um, both like fighting and blades. And um, and it's just it's a really great fight scene, and it's very revealing. It shows. Um, Qui-Gon as a very sort of peaceful Jedi master. Um, it shows the Sith as an impatient, feral kind of hunter guy. And Obi-Wan is sort of a, an impetuous youth and, and, um, and sort of on the bridge between peaceful and, and not. Right. And I, I think for someone like me who, you know, doesn't really necessarily care about the hand-to-hand combat scenes, uh, the way that they use the lights and so there's this long hallway with a series of force fields that they glow differently and you see the lightsabers and you see the newness everything in Naboo is shiny and new it's it's like a super nature planet but it's also super technologically shiny and new and so you've got this really visually stunning scene you've got this use of light this incredible music some very sophisticated lightsaber fighting and it keeps you engaged the entire time. Pretty much every other scene in this movie that just kept going on and on and on and on kept going on and on and on. Whereas this scene, even though it goes on for a very long time, it doesn't feel that way. It's just so very well done. Yeah. And there's a great little sequence in the middle of the fight where um, in that force field hallway that, that Amanda mentioned um, where all three of the combatants end up separated by each other temporarily from, with force fields. And as soon as the force fields close, Qui-Gon Jinn turns off his lightsaber, kneels down, and starts meditating. Um, uh, Darth Maul starts pacing back and forth and probing the force fields with a lightsaber and staring down Qui-Gon Jinn. And Obi-Wan Kenobi is kind of caught in the middle where he's, he's got this panic look on his face. He's not really meditating, but he's not really attacking. He's trying to get his focus. And as soon as the force fields open, he comes running through them as fast as he can and doesn't quite make it to the last room, leaving Qui-Gon and Darth Maul to fight together alone. And, you know, spoiler alert, ultimately Darth Maul kills Qui-Gon Jinn. That's right. And then we see Obi-Wan channel his rage to become a better lightsaber fighter than we had previously seen him. Yeah. And, you know, you can you can see this look on his face. He gets very angry, and he decides that he's going to kill Darth Maul. And he does a combination of cool force moves, cuts Darth Maul in half at the waist, and Darth Maul falls down one of many bottomless pits because bottomless pit architecture is rampant in Star Wars. It's incredible. I can't think of one bottomless pit I've ever seen in my life. Yeah, but yet it seems like every building in Star Wars land has a bottomless pit somewhere, and that's usually where the fight happens. Always where the fight happens. Yeah, and so um, Darth Maul is cut in half. He falls down a bottomless pit. Uh, Obi-Wan is left with Qui-Gon dying in his arms, and Qui-Gon asks him with his last breath to promise to train Anakin as a Jedi. So we've ripped off the last fight scene in A New Hope. We've repeated it, and now we've got the good guys beat the bad guys uh there's still a lot of questions to be answered but there is a awards ceremony very similar to how we had an awards ceremony in a new hope and there's also 
Obi-Wan taking Anakin back to Coruscant, explaining what happened, saying he killed the Sith, you know, life should be grand, and also I'm taking this little boy as my Padawan because I promised Qui-Gon, even though you guys said I didn't want, you didn't want him to be trained, I'm going to be a disobedient person just like my master was. That's right. And Yoda ultimately relents and says, okay, fine, you can train him. Um, and this is probably one of the greatest mistakes in the entire galaxy, if you if you think about it. Had they not trained him, a whole bunch of things down the line may or may not have happened. I mean, Darth Sidious was already the chancellor, and he's already in command of the Senate. But this decision to give an inexperienced Obi-Wan the opportunity to train Anakin Skywalker really sets things up for uh, a big problem with uh, the whole uh, Darth Vader situation. Right. So we went through the whole movie here and, you know, apologize we're a little long here, but there's a lot of plot. This is a good movie. So if we look at the different relationships, there's really no one that we meet that's married. That's not really a thing. There's not love in the, the sense that we know of. There is attachment, though. There's abandonment. There's family. There are relationships that are just not nurtured I, I think that's important to look at it, it's just the way that um they're very haphazard in it and there's a reason why all of this is going to go very south very fast and we've got you know 18 19 years between this and empire day so yeah that's right yeah there's really no there are really no model relationships in this whole in this whole movie um, there and and really that's sort of one of the underlying points right the point of this movie is to show that the galaxy's not in a good place right now, and it is in a place that is open to the Sith taking over, and that's just what they're going to do. Right. So that's a little depressing when you say it that way. It kind of is. I'm sorry. But this is really not, I mean, when you go through this original trilogy, it's not an uplifting trilogy. We start with this sort of descent. Our next our next movie is going to be uh, Prelude to War. We're going to have... Um, a cartoon show about a war and then the rise of the empire at the end of the series it's not a very uplifting trilogy really that's a real bummer ken sorry all right well then let's try to end on a high note because i, I think you know that's just the kind of people we are yeah um remember when we saw this movie how much we loved it i do i you know the hate for this movie didn't come out until much later. When we first saw it, I thought it was great. I was so excited that there was new Star Wars in my life. And uh, and it was so much fun to go see. I think we saw it two or three times. I think we saw it twice. Because if you remember, you know, we we're still college kids. Uh, I was not gainfully employed in the same way I am today. Uh, didn't have that kind of disposable income. But I sure as heck was glad I got to see the movie with you. Yeah, and I with you. All right. Well, I love you. I know.